Hi, I'm Tom Woods, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the statist quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm your host, Doug Stewart, and I have Norman Horn with me today, and we have a special guest who's actually really special to me because he tutored me in basic introductory Greek. He helped me think more clearly about a Jesus-centered hermeneutic. And he was also the first guy who taught me about mimetic theory, Michael Hardin. He is an independent scholar residing in Pennsylvania. He has a master's from North Park Seminary in Chicago and is a PhD candidate at Charles Sturt University in Australia, where his thesis is on religion and revelation in Karl Barth and Rene Girard. He is the author of the excellent book, The Jesus-Driven Life and Reading the Bible with Rene Girard, and among other books, and a score of peer-reviewed articles. He's a popular teacher with a broad global audience, and he is known as the Dude of Theology. That's a moniker he carries proudly. Thanks for joining us today, Michael. Thanks, Doug. Thank you, Norm. Oh, well, it's definitely a pleasure to have you here. And, and I've got to start off with, okay, Dude of Theology. Now, that sounds pretty cool, and I have a guess at what that means, but I'd kind of like to hear the story about how you picked up this nickname. Well, first of all, I've got rather long hair and the same kind of goatee that uh, Jeff Bridges wore in The Big Lebowski. <laughs> okay. And I drink vodka and uh, <laughs> I lounge a lot and I tend to smoke a wee bit from time to time, like, you know. So anyway, when I was in Australia lecturing at a university, one of the faculty members uh, said, man, you are the dude of theology. And I thought it was pretty cool. I even put it on Facebook. This is back in 2012. And then the following year, uh, Brian Zond and Brad Jerzak asked me if I'd fly to California and introduce him to Girard. So I flew out, you know, and uh, took him to see uh, Renee and Martha and, and spend the day. But when I met Brian Zond for the first time, you know, we sat down, we're visiting. He says, man, you are the dude of theology. And I said to myself, you know what? That, that works for me. <laughs> I'll let that stick. Thank you very much. <laughs> but do you drink white Russians, too? That's, yes. that's more important than the vodka. Okay, yes, good, great, good. Grey Goose. <laughs> Gray Goose. All right. Well, next time, if we when we get together, we'll uh, we'll compare notes on how to make the best white Russian. Then, so oh, I'd love to do that. <laughs> excellent, excellent. Well, you mentioned immediately, you know, Rene Girard, and you and I both know. And we talk about mimetic theory here, and, and we all know about Girard. But you know, whenever we we talk about Rene Girard and mimetic theory, it's usually a good idea for you know those who may be less familiar with the idea to get kind of a quick overview about what that means. And it's also is a good exercise for all of us trying to explain mimetic theory. So could you maybe give us like an elevator pitch version of what is mimetic theory in short? Well, mimetic theory, first of all, is not technically a theory. And Bob Hammerson Kelly made it clear. It's actually phenomenologically observable. It's realism. So the term I prefer these days is mimetic realism. Okay. Partly because there's now a tremendous amount of science in scores of disciplines that validate the basic insights of the mimetic theory. The first basic insight is that we humans don't know what we want. Once our basic needs are met, we're the only creature that has wants. And we go 
seeking to fulfill this inner need. Well, how do we do that? We copy the wants of someone around us. We imitate their desire. Now, if, if we are primates and we engage in that behavior, which primates do, we have a breaking mechanism when we encounter each other in a rivalry. I want what you want. You want what I want. And we both want the same thing. So we fight over the banana or the female in the troop. And once one of us submits, bam, it's done. The dominant ape wins. Humans lack that breaking mechanism. And so the rivalry will consistently accelerate to the point of death. So for humans, because they lack any ability to step on a brake pedal, you know, inside of themselves biologically, we've lost that with the, with the growth of the human brain, the bicameral spheres, the corpus callosum that interconnects everything, and the massive, massive number of neural networks that run through our, our cranium. We've lost that. And so... We had to find a way to deal with our violence, particularly as hominids are emerging from, in the evolutionary process, from the apes. And these groups, if they ended up in rivalrous confrontations, exterminated themselves. But eventually, over a period of time, groups would realize that when they, and this is all non-conscious, of course, but when the aggression of the group is taken out on an individual within the group, a weaker individual, usually the weakest, the aggression's gone. There's something that remains, and that's peace. As this begins to develop over tens or hundreds of thousands of years, at some point, consciousness arises, and the victim for the first time will be chosen. That is, there's a finger pointed, and then that gesture is imitated, and then you have a victim, and now you have a scapegoat religion, and now you have gods and eventually culture. And this has all been validated from the neural networks piece of it through uh, studies in rivalry and escalation of rivalries to uh, religion as the postulate of civilization rather than the other way around with the evidence at Gobekli Tepe. So there's just a lot of science in this. And that's why I prefer mimetic realism. Okay, that's that's really interesting. And I kind of appreciate the kind of corrective effort of going about calling it realism because there is certainly so many observable things in our current society right now where we live, where this is this is so evident when you begin to understand kind of the principles of the theory. So when you, you're talking about, you know, this pointing the finger and choosing the victim, like this is a very weird thing to us, I think, even in today's day and age. It feels kind of strange because like intuitively you begin to hear about it. And the moment you begin to kind of understand what's going on, it kind of gives you that tingly feeling like, oh, my goodness, I'm learning something. I'm observing something I didn't quite know before. This is really interesting. But I think there's also a sense in which, you know, we are affected in our Western world in the, in the year, you know, 2020, that does make it feel a little different than it did, say, in antiquity, the time of the Israelites, for instance. So what exactly changed or what, why does it feel different now than it did, say, in days of, of yore like that? Well, you know, my work is primarily in Second Temple Judaism and early Christianity. So you'll notice I just said the key word temple. Antiquity had temples. They still had sacrificial practices. We don't have those anymore. We have no unified, consistent sacrificial mechanism that works anymore. And because 
it's the gospel that has broken down the sacrificial mechanism over the last 2,000 years. We are now left without the protection of sacrifice. What that means is when we try scapegoating, it won't work. The last great scapegoat of Western culture is Adolf Hitler. Interesting. Now, you notice I said scapegoat. And people go, but but he wasn't innocent. No, no, you're, you're absolutely correct. Scapegoats don't have to be innocent. Innocence or guilt is not the important part of being the scapegoat. Being the scapegoat is just simply the figure around whom everyone can say, you know what, you're our problem. Without you, you're gone. And so I could reference, for example, the breakdown of the mechanism after 1991-92 when we went into uh, Desert Storm and we let yep. uh, Saddam Hussein, you know, we said, okay, so you, you can take Kuwait and he does. And then we have this little skirmish. But it's not, it's not until after 9-11 when there's a desperate need for a scapegoat, someone we can all blame this on. And we get Saddam Hussein and he's tried and executed and, and that doesn't unite the world. And then we go to Osama bin Laden. He's tri- he's not tried, but he's executed, whatever you want to call it, taken out or terminated. And that doesn't unite the world. You know, now it's Trump's turn. Uh, various Canadian prime ministers go through this from time to time, as well as, you know, European leaders and you know, you have your occasional big strong man in Africa or someone like Kim Jong-un in North Korea, but the world can't agree on who the problem is anymore because the world does not understand that it itself is the problem. Interesting. So would you say then that if we look at, especially through at recent history, through a mimetic lens like this, you know, we, we can observe that there are some kind of scapegoat figures that are happening, both in kind of large and small scale. What do you think about that? Is there, you know, you've mentioned Saddam Hussein, Osama bin Laden, we've got Trump, we've got some of other world leaders. You could also say that, you know, Kim Jong-un, there's even even a sense in which there's some small, like, well, of course, Vladimir Putin. And again, these aren't necessarily innocent people, but there definitely is a sense that are, the culture around us is trying to pin blame on something Always. for all the problems that we're receiving. Always. So China's next. Oh, yeah, I, th- I think so. And I, I've China's definitely been... going to be the big scapegoat coming up to the November elections. It'll be very interesting to see how or that an attempt, an attempt, I should say an attempt. China, Trump and the Republicans will attempt to scapegoat China. And the well, Democrats may well buy into that narrative. Yeah, yeah. And if they, and if they do, I mean, because to be fair, like the folks on the left are definitely looking at Trump as a scapegoat in so many ways. Do you think there's a sense in which that, you know, the right in their response to that have been trying, you know, with some measure of success to deflect that blame onto other sources such as China? Well, yeah, no, nobody yet in the Democrat or Republican sphere is technically a scapegoat. Okay. Obama was perceived as a rival by the Republicans. Okay the Mitch McConnell Republicans. Sure. And then uh, Trump is perceived as a rival by the Pelosi-Schumer Democrats. Trump perceives Biden as a rival, which he is. Biden perceives Trump. I mean, this is all rivalry still. Nobody's a scapegoat. Okay, okay. okay. So this is where we're just right now in all the rivalries. Oh, okay. And it's only as the rivalries escalate completely out of control and both parties to the rivalry are imitating each other so much you can't distinguish them. And this is why 
it's so important for Mr. Biden not to stoop to Trump's rhetorical level. I see. Interesting. He, he, in other words, he, he needs to treat Trump not as a rival. He needs to treat himself. He need, Biden needs to present himself as a far superior alternative to Trump. Trump's not even in the rivalry. Hmm. That's the way he'll win this thing. You know, this this sort of reminds me of the, <laughs> this is very much in line with the way libertarians observe, you know, what's going on between the left and the right. And we don't, we think it's probably simplistic to think of it as left and right and center and so forth. I mean, it's, it's a lot more dynamic and three-dimensional or four-dimensional than that. But is this more than just rivalry and where do we blame and where is the blame going and stuff? Like, it seems like the introductory thought process for me when I think of mimetic theory or mimetic realism is that there's a lot of blame going back and forth and it all sort of escalates to a point. Is that one way to think about it or is that just, you know, sort of oversimplifying it? Is there more going on there? No, no, that's an important way to think about it. But I want you to put that in the context of a children's game like hot potato or musical chairs. The point of those children's games is to teach children to pass the thing along or to make sure when the music stops, they're not the one that's left out, mm -hmm. okay? What we see happening in our culture today are these children's games being played out on political levels. So hot potato, you know, I can, I can blame you, Doug, and you can blame me, and, 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 and I'll blame you twice as much, and you'll blame me twice as much, and we'll just keep trading back and forth until we're no longer distinguishable. For example, and people can relate to this, Couples, when they're first married, or even longer, an argument begins. Maybe it's something very simple. The wife asks the husband to do the dishes. The husband asks the wife to do something. Whatever happens, the argument starts simple. The next thing you know, it's escalated three, four, five years in the past. It's bringing up a zillion resentments, and it ends up going way somewhere that it never started. You understand what I mean? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> this is what we're seeing today is this escalating rivalry where the two parties are becoming mirror doubles or mirror twins of one another. And that's why Girard observes in his book, Violence in the Sacred and other books, twins were often killed in the ancient world because somehow the humans knew that they, these mimetic doubles were trouble, you know, mm. like Pollux and Castor. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Romulus and Remus. Romulus and Remus, Cain and Abel. Yeah. You know, yep. I just happen to be a Gemini, so maybe that's why I'm always beating myself. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> okay. There you go. <laughs> you know, I I think I just heard the most academic explanation for why politics is childishness. <laughs> <laughs> By comparing it to children's games. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> well, Michael, most recently, we've really seen, you know, what could be amounted to just a wild series of events in, in our world. Of course, we're talking about things like coronavirus and even the protests that resulted from that. You know, the folks who were protesting because they didn't want the lockdowns, and that's, you know, that has some logic to it, I know. But then, you know, there's the murder of the George Lloyd and prior to that, Breonna Taylor, and not to mention, of course, there's plenty of other totally unjust police killings. And the ensuing protests and riots of the past couple of weeks have just been, I mean, really rocked the nation. So to me, when I look at this and I, I think, wow, there is so much that can be unpacked here regarding from a mimetic realist perspective, I barely know where to start. So from your point of view, how can or should, you know, mimetics 
inform our interpretation of these events? How would you go about even doing that? Well, the, the first thing I think is you, you have to really pay close attention to what's happening by using many, many types of information channels. So as I look at the current situation on the street, what I see are wonderful, incredible, peaceful protests. And I also see outside agitators. I have seen agitators from both the left and the right, pictures and videos. Yep. I wonder, I, I mean, I wouldn't put it past the government to send in infiltrators like they did in the 60s and 70s, you know? I mean, that's how governments work, you know? So when I look at this, I have to, to recognize, first of all, on just kind of a phenomenological level, my heart is with those that seek peace and justice. That's where my heart Absolutely. is. Absolutely. But I'm also aware that any attempts that the citizens of a country make to change their government in a peaceful way are often met with violence. Although, interestingly enough, at the end of his book, Engaging the Powers, Walter Wink has page after page after page of successful nonviolent revolution that occurred in the 20th century. So it's quite possible we have been practicing enough that we'll actually be able to pull the next one off without a war. I don't know. But at any rate, that's the first piece. The second piece is, is that. For me, America's roots are religious roots. They're, they're Calvinistic roots. And you have two types of uh, religious roots in New England. You have the Puritans and you have the Congregationalists. Both of them are Gnostic. America oh, is a Gnostic, <laughs> dualistic country in its presuppositions, in its base nature, in its being. So you, you may have always, to unpack that a little more because I'm, I'm sure a lot of people kind of cock an eye to that and go, ooh, what do you mean? Well, what I mean is this. So, you can take a book like Against the Protestant Gnostics by Philip Leah. It's a 1987 Oxford University press book, and the thesis has never been refuted. And in that book, Lee goes back and examines conservative preaching and theology as well as the so-called liberal preaching and theology in the... Uh, 17th and 18th centuries in the United States of America. And it uh, doesn't really move beyond that because he's dealing with origins. And then he notices that both, as he, as he looks at the presuppositions of both the right and the left, they're identical and they're Gnostic. And the argument in America is who has the right to the presuppositions? Yeah, And that's why we have the religious wars that we have. So with that as kind of a, a building block, then I went in and did a lot of research back in the 80s when I was in seminary. I had um, my church history prof, Philip Anderson, uh, his dissertation was on the Puritans. And so we had a great education in the Puritans. And I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm in a Lutheran pietistic school with a church historian that has, you know, is, is not uncritical of the Puritans, but also can show great respect for them. And, and then we're doing the same thing with the early Congregationalists. And at the same time, of course, I'm engaging Bart Bonhoeffer, Boltman, and all these others. And, but as I'm doing this, what I'm beginning to see is that American society has never been united, ever. The only time we were truly united was when we all 13 colonies agreed that King George was the problem. <laughs> but once yep. once we got rid of King George, you go look at the at the late 1780s and 90s uh, and then it's just war after war after war after war. America has been a nation with an external enemy forever. 
And when they don't, we don't have an external enemy. The Cold War is over. What happens? Well, then you got Newt Gingrich to contract for America. The Democrats are evil. Seems like a pretty uh, solid thesis there. I mean, it's definitely been the case that we've seen that kind of going at each other's throats in a way that just seems, I mean, it just looks different once you get into that era. Think about the dualisms right now. Black men, white police officer, right? Mm -hmm. The economy or lives saved through lockdown. I could probably name more. Those are the first two that came to my mind. But Americans only know how to think in a binary pattern. And that's why the, the only Americans that really make a difference are the entrepreneurs. Yeah, hmm. it is really interesting. They're the ones that think outside the box. Well, it certainly it certainly follows along with the, you know the libertarian idea that the biggest way that we get social change is not the motions of the state and what it's doing, but rather through the progress of people like the entrepreneurs. And really, we could even on some level we could generalize that and say the religious entrepreneurs even, and not in the sense of you know let's get mega churches and uh, and televangelists and whatnot, but rather people who are making progress in the development of the way that we think about scripture, the way that we think about our relationship with God and the way that we think about being a church together. And I, so I'm using that in a very general sense that it's not really about money, but about that sort of progress of thought. Yes. I think we're going to look back. I mean, I'm, I'm 63 and however much longer I have to live, I'm going to look back at my life, basically the years that I was living, you know, the 70s, 80s, 90s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, in this this last 20 years, particularly from the 90s forward, there was, those were the supersized years, man. Those were the years oh, yeah. I, I mean, they were amazing. And I don't think we're going to see that for a long, long time, if ever again, because first of all, COVID has shown that we don't need big office spaces. We work doesn't need to exist. You know, um, people can work from home. We can keep labor costs down. We've seen all kinds of things. But AI and robotization are going to absolutely change the workplace. And we're looking at some, I think in the next decade, we're looking at at 1.6 billion people unemployed. I think it's going to get really, really ugly out there. Well, you know, to an extent, I think that there's there's definitely going to be a shift as AI allows for different types of jobs to essentially become deprecated to code. But that's like that's sort of the process of certain types of progress in the first place, right? Oh, I mean, we're gonna, yeah, we, dude, we have to go through this. I mean, yeah. we are so we are so uh, what's the word I want to use here? Cluttered it's, as a species. Yeah. We're cluttered oh, mentally. Yeah. We're cluttered psychologically. We're cluttered. We're just cluttered, and we it's do a need massive. Cleansing, in a way. Yeah, there's a massive inefficiencies that are the result of, you know, just massive buildups of really just, you could say, economically inefficient activities. Well, I'll tell you, one of them is making bombs. Uh, that, yes, darn right. <laughs> if they took all the money they spent on making bombs and they just helped the, the communities that had the, the deep needs, the world would be a totally different place. Oh, yeah. Even we've discussed on on our show, like as much as we do not like the welfare state, but, you know, if we could just agree to end wars and the military industrial complex, dude, I'll be fine with, you know, certain parts of welfare for the the time being. Like, let's just get rid of the killing first. For those who are poor, not not corporations. 
Not right. that kind of welfare. Yeah. And this, and this, think about this, man. You know, the entire United States of America just went socialist. Yeah. With the Fed bailing out the corporations, man. I mean, we are, this is Republican socialism. I mean, how can Republicans decry socialism when they're, they're just a socialist and they've just created, well, I won't say it. My mind went places. I, I'll leave that. <laughs> <laughs> but they, but I mean, they've been doing this for 30 years though, too. I mean, this happened they've been in, doing this it happened, since 1913. Oh, well, you're, that's absolutely true as well. But I mean, even just in terms of the bailouts, we've been seeing that oh. since, you know, since the nineties, no doubt. Yeah. And it's just that, now it's getting recouched in, oh, well, this, we need to do this. Like George Bush II said, we have to abandon free market principles to save the free market. Free market system. And yeah. A free market system or something to that effect. And it's just, you know, you, you want to facepalm yourself and go like, well, that just is nonsensical in the first place, man. <laughs> yeah, well, I kind of I think lately you, you have to be basic. Well, no, Obama and Clinton were very bright, but Bush and Trump, I'm... Mm. <laughs> I have a question about the way in which we think about the wealthy. You know, you mentioned the entrepreneur is yes. a moment ago. And right now it seems like the wealthy are these, I want to say the scapegoats, maybe that's overstating it, but they're the ones who are being, you know, like of all the people who are like conspiracy theorists, it's like Bill Gates is the guy oh, yeah. that we need to fear oh, yeah. or yeah. Jeff Bezos is the guy that shouldn't yeah. have as much money as he does. Right. I mean, what does what does a way of looking at the world where wealthy people have things that masses of people say, well, that shouldn't exist. I mean, somebody like me looks at that and says, well, that's just envy, right? And it's not envy in the sense that I want what you have, but it's envy in the sense of you shouldn't have what I don't want you to have. Well, there's, that's all true, Doug. That's all. I mean, that's yes. If I'm going to talk about this, it's not just my medic theory, though, that's going to inform my perspective. It's also going mm-hmm. to be the gospel. So I can't do just kind of a straight my medic. How oh, does sure. my medic theorist look at wealth? I mean, because I know my medic theorists that are broke and I know my medic theorists that are billionaires. <laughs> you know? well, fair, fair point. Well, I, yeah. Well, part of my question was not articulated, but yeah, right. inform us with the gospel on that if you, if you have any thoughts. Well, I have to tell you, it's been an interesting thing for me. So I have to personalize this because you've known me, Doug, now for eight years now, I think at least. Yeah, something like that. And uh, you knew me, you know, as a theologian, just an independent scholar here living eight miles from you. You know, I'm traveling the world. I'm writing books. You know, we'd visit and stuff. and, And I'm barely making ends meet, but I'm paying the bills, right? And then this last year, I realized at 63, I was broke. And so I ended up, you know, figuring out gold was the way to go. And I've gotten to the gold business. And here's what I've discovered. I have money now. I've got more than I need ever, ever. And I have a different orientation to it. And so I want to tell you a story. Back in December of 2017, I was learning how to trade on the Forex. And I'm very broke back then. And I had $100 just in my account to trade. And I got in there on a on a trade on, you know, these little 10 cent pips, right? And I think it's going to go one way, it goes another. And I'm watching this thing lose a dime at a time. And by the time it hit minus $2, I had broken out in a cold sweat. And I got out of the trade and I said, Michael Harden, what is wrong with you? That's $2. What What's going on with you and money? What kind of attachment do you have to it? And I had to do a lot of analysis at that point, asking myself, what was going on inside of me between me and money. And Doug, 
I was envious. I needed it. I had to collect it. I had to have it, but I couldn't get it. And so I resented others that had it. It was a bother to me, you know, and it was a challenge for me to say, you know, this is my issue. This is not the issue. Of, uh, I mean, when we first met you, you had the, you have the lovely home up there with that beautiful backyard and front view. And Lori and I are living in an apartment, you know, <laughs> remember that? Yeah. You know, and, and so I, when I came to your house, I, I mean, I'd look and I'd say, I wish I could have something like this. I'll never be able to afford it. You know that. But I became really aware that that's how I existed. Mm-hmm. And now that the bills are paid and, and things are good. I find myself being very generous and um, I've, I found myself being too generous. I, I was given too much away. If you know what I mean, if that's mm-hmm. possible, I'm not St. Francis yet. Maybe someday Jesus will call me to do that, you know, but I do have to take care of the family. And so I'm finding myself in these wild swings back and forth with relation in relation to money. And all of that to say that what I'm discovering is I don't want any relationship with money. I don't want money. I don't want to have a relationship with it. It's not, I have relationships with a lot of things. I have a relationship with Carl Barton and Dietrich Bonhoeffer, even though they're dead. I have a relationship with them. I have a relationship with my guitar. I have a relationship with my drum set. I have a relationship with my hot tub in addition to people. But in my backyard, I have a good relationship with, but I don't want a relationship with money. What I've discovered money needs to be in my life is just a simple thing that it was meant to be a medium of exchange and that's it. Having it, not having it, I've had both. I like having it. (laughs) The financial security is incredible. But I know if I lost it now, I'm still loved by the Father and it's all good. Mm. And circumstances are not a barometer of the Father's love. And so these are the things I've kind of discovered all together these last couple of years. And so I'm, I mean, I, I'm sitting here, you know, and, and um, I'm looking for a dollar bill. I don't even have a dollar. I don't even have cash anymore. But if I had a dollar bill, I used to know exactly how I felt about that, how I held on to it, how I clung to it, and how I envied those that had things. I remember people would tell me, some of the older folks, you know, even when I was with Preaching Peace, the board members would say, oh, we're going to go to India and we're going to go visit this place and we're going to the Caribbean. And I'd never been any of those places, couldn't afford to go. The most money I ever made was like 35,000 bucks in a year, you know, and I was jealous. I was, I really was, you know, because here I am giving my life away to Jesus for the church and I got no fees and I'm making no money. I got no 401k, I got nothing. And I was jealous. Hmm. You know, and then all of a sudden I'm, I'm making money and I'm realizing, you know what? There's going to be people jealous of me. It's the human condition. Mm. But I'm certainly not jealous of Jeff Bezos or Bill Gates because I'm not looking for like wealth. I just want to make sure that my wife and I can get through this next decade without too much uh, worry. That's all I'm looking for. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think your message in that respect to us, or what can we walk away from that discussion, which is just fascinating, you know, with is is to really, you know, kind of examine ourselves. I mean, that's the call of scripture in any given point is that, you know, to go away and examine oneself and think about what is your relationship with possessions, with money, and these sorts of things, and to come to grips with what that means. So I, I'm grateful for that because it's a good reminder to be mindful of these things. So thank you for that. I appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah, you're welcome. And so to to kind of as we begin to sort of 
drive toward our close here. I want to go back a little bit more to the mimetic theory side. And because I, I know that sometimes when we talk about these sorts of things, it's very heady. Maybe it seems really societal level and not always something directly personal. Uh, sometimes it it, gets, it just depends on where we where we're at at any given point, I suppose. But we've been talking about societal level stuff. So what I want to do here is let's draw that back in, kind of to this personal side as we've been going on right now. On the personal side of mimetic realism, what can we use there that helps us to love our neighbor better and and perhaps draw closer to God as a result? Okay, that's wonderful question. One of the stories that Rene Girard loved to tell, I mean, it was, and it's a, it's a worthy story. He says, one day he's lecturing, and afterwards this woman comes to him, and she says, oh, Professor Girard, that was so wonderful, this, this whole thing, the phenomenon of scapegoating and the way you did it. She says, because in my family system, I've been the scapegoat. And she goes on and on and on about how her family blames her for everything. And what Rene walked away from is he said, It's easy for us to recognize other people's scapegoating behavior, but we cannot recognize it in ourselves. It's non-conscious. So the first question that gets asked of the Apostle Paul that creates his conversion is, why are you using violence against me? Why are you engaging in violence against me? That's the question. It's the same exact thing. Paul had to recognize he's a persecutor before he could learn to follow in the footsteps of what it means to be the forgiving victim, not the victim like Abel, whose blood cries out for vengeance, but the victim like Jesus, the forgiving victim. And there's more in that in my books if people want. But once you begin by recognizing your own scapegoating, if you're a Christian, You should know that every time you go to Mass or communion or whatever you call it in your tradition, when the priest stands up and he holds up the bread, you know, and he breaks it and then he passes it around, he holds up the cup and he passes it around. We do this little kind of little interior, little me and Jesus thing going on, right? Really what's happening up there is a murder. So I'll, I'll tell you a quick story. I'm in England five, six years ago, and I'm invited to, to do a communion Uh, after a meal at a house church, and there's this long wooden table with these long benches, and there's probably 15, 17 people around this table. So, you know, I just, uh, we'd had the meal, and and they'd talk devotionally like house church people do, and they handed me the bread and the cup, and they said, would you do communion for us? I said, sure. And I picked up the bread knife. Now, if your editor needs to edit stuff out (laughs) here, I understand. But I picked up that bread knife, and I started stabbing that bread. And I'm going, Jesus, you hate you, you stupid son of God. I'm stabbing this bread for all I'm worth. And then I turned and I passed the bread and I passed the knife to the next person. They couldn't do anything. They passed it. And it went like four or five people before somebody was able to kind of tepidly pick up the knife and kind of poke the bread a little bit. I don't like you, Jesus. I don't like you. I don't like you. You know, and uh, the bread went around the table vast majority of people could not do it. And then I passed the cup and I said, for those of you that have just killed the living Lord here, he says, I forgive you. And the people that had at least tried to stab the bread had an incredible emotional experience compared to the others. Why? Because they recognized they were persecutors and that they were forgiven persecutors. 
Now, that's the Eucharist, and that should be the function of the Eucharist in the church. But instead, we've hidden the victim, tidied it all up, turned it into some kind of little ritual we sit and engage in and play with, rather than recognizing it's the most primal ritual of all, human cannibalism. And we are called to come and eat the bread of life. Yeah, the the significance of this has not been fully, I think, realized in well, certainly not throughout my personal history, but kind of realizing that the do this in remembrance of me, in as much as the theories of of the Eucharist are kind of proffered in various you know theological traditions and whatnot, in many respects, so many Protestants have really wanted to go so far against what they complain about sometimes in the Catholic tradition that we really miss out on this very real sense that we are but we are, in a sense, reenacting that murder. We and, precisely are reenacting and that, that murder. And, and mm-hmm. by doing so, we are, we're, we're exposing ourselves to the reality of not just who we are, but, but, what God has, uh, but what God has in store for us. And it is to experience that forgiveness in a way that, it, like you said, is very primal. And, uh, and that I... I wish absolutely, and I wish that people could hear that in the right way as many times as possible, uh, to where it's it's not just you know, community is is more than just uh, you know a little pass around with some flowery language, but it it's recognizing death, it's recognizing burial and resurrection as well, and that's so good. It removes the Platonism of community. Most of us have Platonic views of community, just like we have Platonic views of marriage. And we assume that all these things can be hunky-dory, and that is not the world. I mean, Jesus said, the poor you will have with you always. You know what he means by that? He talks about the poor in his teaching, but it's connected with two Mm -hmm. other things, debt and forgiveness, And as long as there's debt in the world, there's going to be the poor. And as long as there's moral debt in the world, as long as it's the Christians that are that are kind of acting like some grand inquisitor, then there's only going to be an impoverished world. Yeah. The Christians have given up their post. On October 28th of 2017, I was in Dallas town near where Doug and I live, and I preached the sermon for that Reformation Sunday. And I opened by telling people today's an incredible day. It's 500 year celebration of the Reformation. And I talked about churches around the world and what some of them would be doing. And I said, but I'm here today to give you the funeral sermon for Protestantism. And that's what I proceeded to do. Hmm. And it's interesting, you know, hearkening back to earlier part of the conversation, I'm becoming more convinced that the way that we're often approaching communion is, in a sense, a Gnostic practice. Precisely. What do we mean by that, okay? When we enter into communion just with this ethereal idea of, well, we just do this in remembrance of me, and that's it. Maybe read a scripture or two alongside it or something, but not recognizing the body. And that's another scriptural phrase, if we if you'll remember, recognizing the body. Of course. If you don't do that, recognize the body, then you're, in a sense, denying the physicality of it. And the denial of the physical is, is crucial to the Gnostic proposition. Absolutely. And so 
I think we we <laughs> we could go on for that for a long time. I'm pretty sure yeah, we have like a whole another episode just on this kind con- yeah. just topic. Yeah. Well, Gnostic Christianity. I, I mean, I've been. Oh man, I could I could give you some stories about what I the the things that I have seen and and related to this sort of stuff and beyond. But it's well, not the time and place for it. But yeah. maybe this next is, time we're this up. Has to, been, this has <laughs> been my battle. Has been against Gnostic yeah. Christianity since I, my first published article in 1985. Wow. All right. See, uh, I've been battling this for my whole life. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm, we're appreciative of it for sure. So I know that you've, you've been uh, also in recent efforts publishing. Uh, and so what, what is this recent book you got coming out about consumer Christianity that I keep hearing? What, what is the, what's this the title? About? The title is knowing God with a question mark. Uh, originally <laughs> it was just knowing God. I, it was my way of essentially saying to the J.I. Packer evangelical tradition, Thank you very much, but your God isn't worth knowing. So instead, I just put knowing God with a question mark. And the subtitle is Consumer Christianity and the Gospel of Jesus. And in that book, in the first three chapters, two or three chapters, whatever it is, I use my friend John Paul's metaphor of uh, the church experience as a shopping mall, or the shopping mall, rather, is a religious experience. He has a great book on this called Shopping Malls and Sacred Spaces. And I basically talk about Protestantism as a great big mall you can go into. you got all your different stories, hawking all their different wares, doctrines and dogmas. Uh, you know, I talk about this, the, the evangelical stores and make, mock, make fun of them. I talk about the uh, liberal progressive uh, politically correct store, uh, which... Uh, deals in fair trade products, you know, <laughs> these kinds of, <laughs> you know, and, the, and then the charismatic store with, you know, all the lights and the sound and the fair. And I, I basically, I'm just critiquing that. And uh, then I critique especially the phenomenon of Christian mysticism, which basically, for my money today, 95% of Christians out there that are on a so-called spiritual or mystical path because they're trying to make connections somehow with the divine because the church has so failed them and God bless their heart and may Jesus come and find them in their darkness. But most of them have just become syncretists. And yeah. there's no real gospel core to their spirituality, and that's why there's such a lack of ethics. Uh, but then the second half of the book reconstructs the gospel, and there is a theological move I make in that book that I don't know that has been made before in the history of Christianity. I start with, with where's the gospel start? I start with Paul, crucifixion. In the West, we all, in the East, the church begins with incarnation. But I start with crucifixion. I move through resurrection, ascension. And then I come back to incarnation with the return of Jesus, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, the church connected to discipleship, incarnational life. You know, that we are, we are the living person of Jesus today as he was then and bring all of that together. And I don't know that that's been done before. Well, that's really exciting. I'll have to get a copy of that as soon as I can and take a look. I'm excited to read it. It's a cure for insomnia. <laughs> <laughs> probably underselling it. You, you should probably say something a little better about it. But yeah. <laughs> no, I, I've read uh, at least three, maybe four of your books, and they've all had me both scratching my head at times and then later thinking, ah, okay, yeah, yeah, got it, got it. And so they they are good books for a journey for those who are wanting to know God more in ways that I want to say the word fresh, and, and I know that, that can sound more dangerous than it is, but fresh ways in the sense that you want to get closer and closer to How about the Lord. authentic? 
Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's that's good. So I really appreciate your work and I hope listeners will reach out to buy your books. And do you have a website or is this like follow you my on website Facebook? is my website is preachingpeace.org, but Amazon mm-hmm. has my book. All my books. Okay. Okay. Good. Good. Well, I appreciate you coming on to talk with us. And you've been one of the people I've been like, I, I gotta have Michael on. I've gotta have Michael on. And I, I promise it won't be 175 episodes from now. You'll you'll be on way before then. Um because so, <laughs> uh there, there there's uh there's a lot more for us to uh to dive into from what we've talked about today. So I appreciate you joining us. It has sure been fun to uh, speak with both of you, and Doug, it's been great. And I look forward to this thing being over. May it be great I'll just to take a social distance walk with you, man. Yeah, well, you know, <laughs> I, I have a fire pit, so we can you know, we can easily sit six feet apart or, or more. That sounds like a good idea. I've been to that fire pit. That's right. Yeah, that was we had just got that. So this is, yeah, it's been a long time, brother. So, <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, to more social time and uh, another episode in the future. There you go. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com. Hey, podcast listeners. Since you like listening to audio content, we wanted to let you know about a new audiobook titled Called to Freedom, Why You Can Be Christian and Libertarian. It's read by me, Jacqueline Isaacs, one of the contributing authors of the book, and every download helps to support the Libertarian Christian Institute. To learn more and to download the audiobook today, go to calltofreedombook.com.